This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Every couple of years, I go through a period of intense insomnia and wrangle up all sorts of ways to coax myself to sleep. My most successful method to date is imagining that I am soaring backward 13 billion years in time to the singularity we now call the Big Bang. Along the way, I pass unfamiliar galaxies in attempts to understand how they got there and what, if anything, inhabits the odd surfaces. I marvel in front of a black hole and infinitely float towards the event horizon, unable to move into or out of its gravitational pull. Time has stopped in front of this gorging vortex, and I am rendered paralyzed and mute by its power. By the time I finally fall asleep, I fantasize finding success in the discovery of one grand unifying theory of the universe, brashly bringing together Einstein's theory of relativity and the science of quantum physics. This, of course, is rendered with no real education in science or math or physics, and by the time I rise the next morning, I have all but forgotten the nonsensical equations memorized on my mystical journey. Though severely obtuse in regard to all things scientific, it would be an understatement to say that I am fascinated by the theories of our origins. However successful as a tactic for eradicating sleeplessness, I can only wish I had even one shallow answer to the perplexing questions we now face as a species. I also love science fiction and the more speculative genres. I find television shows such as Star Trek and the X-Files and movies like Star Wars endlessly captivating. Not surprisingly, last weekend I went to see the highly anticipated J.J. Abrams film Cloverfield, a Blair Witch-inspired flick about a Godzilla-like alien that lands in Lower Manhattan and proceeds to destroy everything in its path. As the film unfolded, I found myself in a bizarrely bewildered state, unable to believe that I had paid money to watch a film about unsuspecting civilians running through narrow city streets while being chased by thundering, engulfing plumes of smoke and debris from crumpled buildings. I leaned into my friend Emily and asked if she thought the movie could be a metaphor. She glumly shook her head no. I think it's supposed to be an actual monster, she said. On my walk home, I passed billboards for the Will Smith movie I Am Legend and a new television show premiering on the History Channel titled After People. The campaigns for both the film and the series contained images of a post-apocalyptic Manhattan, and like Cloverfield, they feature familiar landscapes rendered wholly immobile by our demise. As I viewed the thorny, overgrown locations, I realized that somehow, in the six-plus years since 9-11, enough time had passed to now see these realistically horrific images as entertainment. Philosophers and scientists alike agree that if humans can imagine something, there is the distinct possibility that it can be manifested. 
As I observed the trifecta of imagery around me, I couldn't help but wonder if we had either forgotten the horror of our past or if this horror had become so much a part of our reality that we now simply factor this into our forecast of the future. It is hard to tell. Why do we remember what we remember? Why do we forget what we forget? In the Harold Pinter play Betrayal, two ex-lovers recall a shared experience differently and argue about who has the more accurate recollection. Pinter makes it clear that though each character's memory is deeply ingrained and staunchly believed, the validity of each memory is highly subjective. This is both a saving grace and a hindering happenstance in our humanity. As memories, our memories, as frail or fierce or fabulous as they are, help us construct our realities, our identities, and our manifestation of the world around us. When they fail, our world fundamentally changes, and we cease to be what we remember or recognize. Our current reality is simply a collection of overlapping memories, some shared, some not. Each memory we have is cinematic as it gets swept up in the sequence of memories that proceed and follow it, sort of like the ultimate domino effect. The condition of our collective memory has now become the condition of our consciousness and our culture. Last Sunday night, I once again found myself suffering from insomnia. I lay in bed, tossing and turning, reliving the experience of Cloverfield, witnessing the falling buildings in slow motion over and over again in my head, rewriting the ending, reconfiguring the storyline, redressing the wounds of the recollection. And then I stopped. Why was I doing this? Why was I putting myself through this? I had no idea, and I reconsidered. Rather than relive our destruction, why not embark on my ritual into the far reaches of the universe? For though I may not have even one answer to the questions that face both our civilization and our purpose here, I decided I would much rather obsess over our mysterious origins than be debilitated by our demise. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Dr. Eric Kandel. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Dr. Eric Kandel is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist and professor of biochemistry and biophysics at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He was a recipient of the 2000 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his research on the physiological basis of memory storage in neurons. His other honors include the National Medal of Science, the Wolf Prize, the Lasker Award, and many, many others. Dr. Kandel has been at Columbia University since 1974 and is the author of In Search of Memory, The Emergence of a New Science of Mind, which chronicles his life and research. The book was awarded the Los Angeles Times Book Award for Science and Technology in 2006. Welcome, Dr. Kandel. Oh, thank you, Debbie. What a gracious introduction. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled. Well, your book, In Search of Memory, is a marvelous, fascinating book. It's both a memoir of your life and your work. And in it, you describe your horrific experiences during Kristallnacht and the Holocaust, as well as your life's work in science. And the first question I wanted to ask you is when you pose yourself in Chapter 16 of the book, and you ask, how can one remember a social encounter, a natural scene, a lecture, or a medical pronouncement for a lifetime? 
Yes, I mean, that is one of the deep questions of memory storage. We, we don't have the complete answer for that, but we have a beginning understanding. We understand that um, we represent the outside world in our brain, and when events happen uh, that are meaningful to us, uh, we store them in particular regions of the brain. For example, a long-term memory about people, places, and objects, so this would be, you know, your first love experience, for example, would initially be stored in a region deep in the brain called the hippocampus, uh, and then ultimately also stored in the outer surface of the brain called the cortex, the neocortex. Mm -hmm. And that the long-term memory for that is represented by an anatomical change in connections between the nerve cells of the brain. So the interesting two features about long-term memory is that it involves growth of new synapses. So insofar, Debbie, as you and I remember this conversation two days from now is because our brain will be slightly different as a result of this. So it will be altered by this experience. It will be altered by this experience. And this alteration, and this also is surprising, comes as a result of changes in the expression of genes in those nerve cells in which the growth occurs. Now, you write about how a considerable amount of the brain's processing of perceptual information is carried out unconsciously. Yes. In what the physicist Herman Hemholtz called unconscious interference. Inference, right. In, so inter, is it inference or interference? Inference. Inference. So can you can you give us an example of this for the for the designers well, sure. and artists? Tomorrow that I'm going to go out and play tennis when I rushed to the net, insofar as I rushed to the net, and I hit a nice volley, uh, I'm not thinking of how to position my racket or how to, you know, tense the muscles of my, uh, control my wrist. I do this automatically. I do this reflexly. I do this in an unconscious fashion. Mm -hmm. When uh, my granddaughter rides a bicycle, she doesn't tell herself at this particular point she's going to put a left foot forward, she's going to put a right foot forward. If she talks to herself like that, Having ridden the bike for a number of years, she's going to fall off the bike. Um, you and I are having a perfectly reasonable conversation. We understand each other very well, and yet I don't know whether I'm speaking grammatically. I don't know where the noun is in my sentence, where the verb is, or even whether there is a noun or a verb. Mm -hmm. So even elaborate aspects of our behavior, such as communication, is to a large degree carried out unconsciously. Now, when you first learn to speak, when you first learn to ride the bicycle, when you first learn to hit a volley, you obviously pay attention and you use conscious participation. But after you've mastered it, motor and perceptual skills become implicit. So would design skills become implicit when actually creating a brochure or an annual report or a poster? How much of the knowledge of form? A lot of it. For example, gifted pianists, for example, don't tell themselves, you know, about fingering as they play. They have mastered that. That's implicit with it. Um, so many aspects of the expression of artistic endeavors are implicit. Now, you, you, in your book, you write about studies that have shown that training in visual discrimination of color or form also lead to changes in brain anatomy That's and right. improved perceptual skills. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, the simplest thing is if you look at your right hand, uh, you see that there are five fingers, not surprisingly. 
each finger has a separate representation in the brain. Um, there's one for the left hand and there's one for the right hand. Mm-hmm. Um, if you now examine string instrument pay- players and ask what is the size of that representation for people who play a stringed instrument, you find that the representation of the right hand, which does the bowing, in which there is no individuation of the fingers, it's just like a fist, there's no difference between a string instrument player and a person on the street. But the left hand, which does the fingering, there's a much larger representation of the left hand of string instrument players than there is of people who don't play a string instrument. And, and this is an important and, if you start playing while you're very young, mm-hmm. before you're before puberty, before, let's say, 12, 13, that representation will be much larger than if you start to play afterwards. And why is that? Because the immature brain has greater capabilities for these anatomical changes in most areas of knowledge than the mature brain. You always have the capability of changing, but the degree to which you have it is a function of age. Is it also a function of desire? Oh, of course. But at any given age, the amount of attention, the importance it has for you is critical for determining how well it becomes represented in the brain. And this is why, you know, prodigies or even mature people, you know, if they really throw themselves into something, um, are likely to do very well. I mean, when you see people doing science, the best people, by and large, get enormous pleasure. It's like an intellectual addiction out mm-hmm. of doing it. And this is a feedback mechanism. They enjoy it, and therefore they do it. They do it, and they get better at it, and they enjoy it even more, etc., etc., etc. Now, quite a lot of science, uh, scientific... Um uh, what's the word I want to use here? The, quite a lot of important scientific findings, mathematical findings, have been found by people that are relatively young. And in fact, um, in, in movies and in popular culture, I think that it's, it's quite known that most important findings are by people that are very young. And if you haven't discovered something by your late 20s or early 30s, forget it, you're not going to. Yet in other categories, for example, Poetry. Most poets really don't come to, into their um, into their prime until they're in their fifties. Why is there this difference in achieving excellence at certain ages? That's a very very wonderful point, uh, Debbie. Um, there are certain fields: chess, uh, mathematics, uh, being key among them, um, in which. Pure musical capability, composition, for example, in which you don't have to know the history of the field. You just need to master or be creative with a set of logical rules, and you can do innovative new stuff. In other areas, such as biology, you have to have a certain amount of perspective. You have to have a certain amount of taste. You have to have a certain perspective. And people in biology, although, you know, a Jim Watson will make a fantastic contribution in his 20s, most people have to be more mature than that mm-hmm. in order to tell the forest or the trees. Also, um, 
the double helix is a special example in which a single insight, essentially accumulated over a period at its peak of days, will have an enormous impact on the field. Most areas of biology, the research is a bit more cumulative. You have an idea, you test it, you get some support for it. Did you do more experiments, you find that your initial idea may have been simplified. So you enrich and understand the finding by doing additional experiments, and that often takes a number of years. Interesting. So different forms of learning then also give rise to different forms of memory. Absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. Fascinating. Um, Dr. Kendall, we have a caller. We have a caller, Gregory from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Dr. Kendall. How are you? I'm well, Gregory. How are you? Thank you. I'm, I'm fascinated by this, actually fascinated, because I'm someone who I live by the memory, memory meaning sentiment. And I'm, I'm very curious, you know, you're a, it, we're able to explain how the memory works and what triggers it and what, what can block it. But how do you make a correlation between memory and sentiment and the, the um, I guess, the, the amount of sentiment uh, that is attached to memory? Is it just a person's experience or is, is it something else? Well, by sentiment, I presume you mean it almost in a Jane Austen way, the, the feeling tone that goes with it. Well, you know, for example, I hold things very, very dear uh, with regard to my grandparents, whether sure. it's an object I have or whether it is something I remember yes. of them. Yes. But so yes, this is the I emotional might... halo yes. that you carry with the memory. That's correct. There is an area in the brain called the amygdala, not far away from the hippocampus, that gets similar kind of information that the hippocampus gets and that in turn talks to the hippocampus. And that carries emotional overtones. And those overtones also get passed on to certain areas of the cortex that are concerned with feeling states. I see. I see. That's so right. memory, you're absolutely right. And the more emotionally charged memory is, and by charged, I don't necessarily mean negatively charged. Yes, correct. But it's completely understandable how on, in an um, average, expectable environment, one has very fond memories of one's grandparents. They usually spoil one, they're elderly, they're philosophical, they're not as demanding as one's parents. Now, they're obviously exceptions of, of abuse, but by and large, most of us have been privileged to have wonderful grandparents, and my memories of my grandparents are extremely fond. Uh, my grandfather tutored me in Hebrew one point. It was a wonderful experience for me, and I remember my brother and I talking about the possibility of my being tutored and we would always laugh about my grandfather, who was a very, very scholarly Jew. And my brother said of him, he's the only man I know who can speak seven languages and can't make himself understood in any one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. Thank you so, so much. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Nice, nice talking to you, Gregory. Thank you. Gregory, thank you for calling. Um, Dr. Kendall, we have another caller on the line. We have Perry from Dallas. Perry, thank you for calling Design Matters. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Kandel, it's a pleasure to speak to you and nice to, to answer your question. Do you have a question? Yes, I do. I, I wanted to know, um, um, given the the idea of design, if Dr. Kandel believed that it was at least possible that a, a well-designed environment for, say, uh, a human child growing up might um, 
it might be customized so that uh, implicit memories could be improved. There might be some environments that were better for improving, say, for instance, uh, the child's ability to make transitive inferences or to be aware of um, equivalences, some that would, might be uh, specious and some might be good. And I was just, I, I wondered, this might have implications for education as well as design. I, I wanted to get Dr. Kandel's opinion. I think that's a wonderful question. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that. So I'll give you, you know, my limited understanding of that area. Um, I think there are two components to the question. One is, to what degree does the aesthetics, the sheer beauty of the environment, um, affect you, both as a child growing up um, and as a mature adult? And then I think we both would almost immediately say, well, my gosh, it's just absolutely wonderful. I mean, um, when I'm depressed, I close my eyes and I think of South Wellsleep where we have a summer home and I, you know, hear the rush of the ocean. I mean, we have memories these are of my adult experiences. My early childhood memories don't have these romantic tinges to them. <laughs> um, but I feel I live a privileged life. I live, you know, have a wonderful office where I'm sitting right now. I look out at the Hudson River. I have a very nice home. That makes an enormous impact. When I sit down for dinner, which we do in a very pleasant, almost elegant way, I just enjoy the beauty of my surroundings. That I, you know, that has an impact. That is uplifting. I think beauty is uplifting and be surrounded by a beautiful home to walk into an interesting building. And if you notice, uh, you know, gifted architects like uh, Lorenzo Piano becoming increasingly involved in doing laboratory architecture because universities want great architects to design great spaces to inspire the scientists who work there. So to be in an optimal environment uh, and... Survey studies of various uh, sorts, ex you know, sort of interrogating people who work in, a certain, in factories have repeatedly pointed out that the physical environment is an enormous stimulus to productivity and creativity. But you're asking a more specific question. I gave you the sort of the general aesthetic response to the environment really stimulates one's sentiment, makes one feel better or can make one feel horrible. Um, to what degree it increases one's logical powers, um, I, I honestly don't know. Now, obviously, if there are a certain number of tasks required, you know, if you had to maneuver some way in order to get up and down the stairs, it might increase some kind of skill for geometrical space. Uh, certainly, you know, your spatial memory certainly might be affected depending upon the complexity of the spatial design. Hmm. Um, but there may be more specific answers. There, there is a friend of mine in California uh, at the Salk Institute, which is a magnificent structure, uh, Khan's greatest architectural contribution. My friend's name is Rusty Gage, and he's particularly interested in um, neuroscience and architecture. And um, you may want to speak to him about this. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you for calling, Perry. You know, it's interesting because I think that part of what 
makes us want to seek being around beautiful things is the sense that somehow we feel happier amidst that beauty. And I want to talk to you a little bit about happiness. Um, one of the quotes in your book that I underlined was, we don't like being miserable. What we really want to do is to be happy, to be secure, to be confident. And it seems as though humans really do have this common denominator, this need to be happy. How, how does one go about actually studying happiness? Is there a, a mental baseline for happiness in our well, of brains? Of course, of course. Uh, I mean, happiness is represented in the brain just like sadness is represented in the brain. There are certain areas of the brain uh, that are involved in feeling states. And area 25 of the cortex, for example, if it is overactive, people become sad. And if it becomes severely overactive, people become depressed. Uh, there are the areas that light up when people are happy and content. Um, a simple example is that if you see a person who is happy, you can recognize on their face that they're happy. Universally. Universally. Darwin first pointed out that there are seven universal expressions that are shared by every single group of human beings in the world. You actually see representations of this in higher animals. Moreover, not only do you recognize this as being happy, but empathically, we respond to somebody being happy by being somewhat happy ourselves. And we know what areas of the brain light up in this imitative behavior. So not only can you be happy intrinsically, but you can be induced to be happy by a variety of external stimuli, which I'm giving you the simplest example. Right. I myself am very sensitive to light. When, you know, when the sun is out, it's like Mozart music is playing in the background. You can't help but feeling good. You know, when it's gray for several days in a row, I really sense it. I'm not as energetic. I'm not as, you know, enjoying life. Uh, so there are a large number, not only interpersonal stimuli, which, of course, are the most important in enriching our life, you know, a good relationship, uh, enjoying one's children, having fun with one's grandchildren, having good colleagues. There are environmental effects that, that deeply influence how we feel. Now, you mentioned the word empathic, and, and empathy is another one of these phenomena that I am absolutely fant um, I'm absolutely fascinated by um, memory, empathy, um, these ways of constructing our reality. Can you talk a little bit about how empathy is um, created in the brain? How do we get a sense of how to be able to either measure somebody else's sentiment or to be able to connect with them through uh, a shared experience empathically? Um. That's a wonderful question, and one can like I give you a sort of an overview. There are two kinds of contributors to empathy, um, which is part sort of a of social interaction, right? Mm -hmm. um, to a very surprising degree, some components of empathy are genetically determined. Really? In and what way? In what way? I'm sorry well, to interrupt you. I'm just curious um, about that. We know this primarily from simple animals. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go beyond empathy, okay. social interactions, okay? Worms, very simple worms, 
called C. elegans. It has a nervous system of 312 nerve cells. Unbelievably simple animal. Goes foraging for food in one of two ways. One species goes alone. Each worm is out for his or her own good. Another very closely related species does it as a social group. They forage together. When Corey Bogman at the Rockefeller analyzed the genome of these two species of worms, she found that the critical difference was in a receptor, in a gene that encodes a receptor protein. And one amino acid changed an isolated worm into a social worm and a social worm into an isolated worm. Wow. Quite remarkable. NPY receptor, receptor involved in feeding. Example number one. Example number two, Tom Insel, who is now director of the National Institute of Mental Health, was studying uh, voles. These are rat-like animals. Yes, yes, the ones that mate for life. That's right. There are those that are faithful <laughs> to one another, and there are those that are promiscuous. Right. And so this is a fundamental difference between sort of pair bonding and fidelity, sharing the responsibility for the young together, and the other is that as soon as you mate, you run off and you find somebody else. Completely different behavior. That, again, is genetically determined and determined by the regulatory elements that control specific hormones that are involved in bonding, like oxytocin and vasopressin. Mm -hmm. Third example is what are called mirror neurons. These were first described in monkeys, so we're going up the evolutionary ladder, if you will. Yes. It was found that in an area of the motor system, called the premotor cortex. There are cells that respond when a monkey picks up a peanut. Not surprising. It's the motor system. It's supposed to respond when monkeys pick up a peanut, right? Because that's the system that controls the monkey picking up the peanut. But the amazing thing that Vizolatti in Italy made was he found that these cells fire not only when the monkey picks up a peanut, but it also fires when some other monkey picks up a peanut, and it even fires when people pick up a peanut. Uh-huh. So these cells fire in imitation of behavior. Zealot-like. <laughs> and this extends to all aspects of behavioral imitation. They imitate lots of things. These cells will fire, or related cells will fire, when other monkeys or other people do a variety of different things. And there's now increasing evidence that, um, you know, mother speaking to an infant child, the infant child uses processes analogous to mirror neurons mm -hmm. to see the movements of the lips and the tongue and things like this in acquiring speech. And the last example is Rebecca Sachs at MIT has done beautiful imaging experiments on what is called theory of mind. Theory of mind, Uta Frith is a person who's popularized that because she's shown this is defective in kids with autism. Mm -hmm. Theory of mind is when you and I are having a conversation. Uh, we can talk about whatever subject you introduce and we'll talk about it insofar as we have shared knowledge about it. But I have some idea of what you would like me to talk about when you ask a question and you have some idea of the range of competence that I have to answer it. So we have ideas in our heads about the other person's plans and intention. That's called theory of mind. And we function in large part of social individuals by having some expectations of the people around us. Mm -hmm.
Hi, this is Greg Fraley. I'm the author of Jack's Notebook, which is a business novel about creative problem solving. And I'm here to talk to you about something very creative, which is Fuse. Fuse is the annual event for designing culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Piers in New York, and it's been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Be inspired by industry gurus like Malcolm Gladwell, a writer on science, culture, and human behavior, Peter Thum, who is the founder of Ethos Water, Kate Betts, editor at Time Style and Design, Erwin Simon, CEO of the Haines Celestial Group, and Stefan Sagemeister, one of today's most important designers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. I hope to see you there. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.36 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Nobel Prize-winning scientist and author, Dr. Eric Kandel. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Dr. Kendall, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And we were talking about theory of mind, and we were actually talking about one isolator, uh, one isolated receptor changing the way that we think or remember. And um, in, in an article that I read in Discover Magazine about some of your more recent work, uh, you wrote that, or you were quoted as saying, we have identified some of the genes in the mouse that are important for both learned fear and instinctive fear. And we've shown that by knocking out a certain gene, we can produce a mouse that is relatively fearless. Um, so I wanted to know what, you, what implications you thought that would have on humans, if at all that was possible. I mean, we certainly find people who are much bolder than others, um, and who are relatively fearless. Uh, now, what, how would you define fearless? Well, willing to go into situations that you know to be extremely dangerous and not to be frightened. Okay. And um, do you I think... I mean, uh, there, there are two things. There's one which we call, you know, courage. That is, people who are normally frightened, like most of us are, uh, nonetheless are capable of performing reasonably well in situations of combat. Mm-hmm. That's overcoming one's in, instinctive and learned fear for a greater good. Mm-hmm. But there are people who go into that uh, loving it, who get pleasure out of the danger because they don't experience great fear. There is a famous book called The Love and Fear Flying by Douglas Bond, a very famous psychiatrist, uh, from Western Reserve University, who analyzed fighter pilots in the Second World War, those that cracked up after many, many bombing attacks. And he ended the book by saying, you know, it's completely understandable that people would have a nervous breakdown when they fly time after time over Germany, have to drop a lot of bombs, and they're seeing all these horrible explosions. What worries me more is those that have flown 50 or more missions 
and have no uncomfort with it at all. Right. What is going to be their rehabilitation after the war? How are they going to function after the war? And that's a very interesting point. Um, so fearless people seem commendable in certain contexts. They are also potentially dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it's hard others. to imagine what a person would be like without any fear at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, being paralyzed by fear and then also being aware of fear are very different things. Yeah, absolutely right, absolutely right. I mean, what do you think that if, if we were able to knock fear out of human beings, what would that do to the reptilian part of the brain? If we did not fear? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my fear is that people like suicide bombers may fall into this category. Right. It's possible that terrorists recruit people who either, you know, uh, so accustom themselves to the idea of dying for a religious cause. I mean, it's really like martyrdom. But others, my guess is, do it because they're fearless. They're absolutely fearless. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about barbarianism and, and, and the horror that humans are capable of. And in 1993, Bill Buford wrote a book, I don't know if you're aware of it, he called it, uh, it's titled Among the Thugs. And in it, he joins up with a bunch of violent soccer hooligans in Britain in order to comprehend their motivations. And he discovers that though he's repelled by the violence that he witnesses, and he even takes part in some of the violence, he also finds that he's attracted to it. And there's a blood god impulse to succumb to the ecstasy of, of violence, and this impulse is all the more stronger since he's part of the crowd, which becomes massive in number, and he feels that his brain becomes one with their brain until the unifying thought is kill and destroy. And essentially the book is an exploration of crowd psychology, but it ties in with any discussions involving the utter viciousness of our random and sometimes motiveless behavior, and it seems as if one of the biggest mysteries of human existence is the irrationality of human behavior. And in your book, you question how could a highly educated and cultured society, a society that at one historical moment nourished the music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, in the next historical moment sink into barbarism. And I just wanted to know if you felt that human beings have this barbarism in our DNA. We do. And, and we do. Uh, I think there are two components. There, there, there is very likely to be a small segment of any population that truly has uh, genetic alterations that lead to barbarism. In, let's call this intrinsic versus extrinsic barbarism. Okay, so there are people that are probably born with a genetic defect that causes them to be psychopath, to be insensitive to people's lives and to enjoy torture and other people's death. Mm -hmm. I think, I'm, I'm saying at time zero, not that they were trained to do this, they feel this instinctively. So I think there are an, an, the occasional people who are like that. In the vast majority of cases, I think this is learned. And this really came originally from Hannah Arendt, The Banality of Evil, when she studied Eichmann, mm -hmm. and has been followed up extensively by Benno Miller Hill, a German biologist who studied people who participated in, uh, in the Holocaust, and a wonderful book called Nazi Doctors by Richard Lipton makes the same point. Um, it's um, not so much 
Lipton says, makes the point, it's not so much that the evil is banal, the evil is evil, it's that the people who commit often evil are often banal. They're you know, like you and me, they have a single head, they have two eyes, they have one nose, but people have the capability for evil in them if they're appropriately socialized to devalue what they're expressing their evil against. So if you convince people that Jews are vermin and that you're going to save German society because you're going to get rid of this disease, then you can recruit physicians whose job is to keep society healthy to participate in these horrible events. And this is what the Nazis did. Mm-hmm. They convinced you know, a good part of the population and they convinced a surprising number of physicians and scientists that this was an essential step to maintain the Aryan society that would benefit the state. Um, and the socialization was so successful that most of these people did not feel any sense of guilt about what they were doing. They thought they were doing the right thing. Right. You look at the Milgram experiments. We were talking about that yeah, on the show ab- last week. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a perfect. Day. You can take people off the street and get them to do quite unpleasant things. And that's yeah. just part of our DNA. Yes. And yes. do you think that that's something that can be changed? If we can remove fear from our our capabilities, can we take that out? Well, I'm not sure. We want to manipulate that. I think we want to arrange that societies inculcate people with moral values and respect for other people rather than manipulating with DNA because for all you know, this capability for evil may have some other benefit to it that we're unaware of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. There are many times sides to a coin. Uh, I mean, these people that committed evil came from families that probably had in earlier generations many, many members that did wonderful things, Mm -hmm. good and healthy things for society. Um, So I would not favor large-scale changes in the human genome at this point. (laughs) Although, God knows, we need a lot of social improvements. Yes, yes. Oh, actually, we we have Isabel back on the line, so let's get her on the line while we still have her. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. Congratulations, Debbie, on another season. I'm expecting great things. Thank you. Dr. Kendall, it's been very, very fascinating, but I have two questions regarding memory. Do we possess the ability to completely erase a memory rather than just repress it? I mean, you know, if you think of all the people, even in those experiments and and when people have really awful things, perhaps in their past or whatever, I know memory, there's a lot of talk of how people repress memories that comes up later in life, but is there an absolute as to how to completely eradicate it? Uh, Well, in experimental animals, you can certainly completely eradicate a memory. Um, because it requires certain chemical changes uh, to be stored. So if you stop protein synthesis or you stop gene expression at a critical point in the acquisition process, you could block it. In people, that's very unlikely. Um, if there's a very powerful distracting stimulus at the time you're acquiring this information, you might be able to disrupt it. What you can do is... Um, Interfere with the emotional salience of the event. Um, if you were listening to the early part of the program, we spoke about the emotional charge 
that is associated, both positive and negative, that is associated with memory storage. That is signaled by a structure called the amygdala. Um, and the action of the amygdala is importantly influenced by a hormone called norepinephrine, sort of a transmitter. And there is a blocking agent that prevents this substance from binding to its appropriate targets. Uh, these are called um, beta receptor blockers. If you, God forbid, were to go into a burning building as a firefighter, in order to bring out people, and I would know, let's say I was your commanding officer, know that you're likely to see death and dying in that building, um, one might consider giving people going into that building the beta blocker. They would function perfectly well. They would remember what they saw. But the frightening emotional reaction that is associated with it would be dimmed dramatically. And that very likely might decrease post-traumatic stress. Another way of reducing post-traumatic stress is what is called extinction. That is, if one exposes the person repeatedly to the event that frightens them, the emotional charge associated with it is decreased. Not the absolute memory, but the frightening aspect of it is decreased. So you can diminish, I think, quite predictably, the emotional charge, whether the actual imagery um, can be limited, I would doubt. It will dissipate with time. Most memories do dissipate unless they're just very unusual. Um, and you can just consciously forget about it. Like your mother says, don't worry about that. Think pleasant thoughts, my mother would say to me. So if you think pleasant thoughts, you can probably override it. It'll come back, but you can certainly get it out of your mind. Thank you. And on the other side of the coin, why do some people have better memories than others? So does it imply that they have a higher capacity to process external external stimuli better? You mean that they remember more things, Isabel? Yeah, some people have more detailed sure. memories. No, 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 that. there's no question. People differ a great deal along several dimensions. They differ in how well they remember things, and they differ in what they remember. A very good example, for example, is spatial memory. Do you have a good spatial memory? No. I okay, I have a terrible spatial memory. Uh, I've been married for 52 years. For the first 10 years of our marriage, when we were driving together, I drive and my wife is the navigator. She thought I just wasn't paying attention to her instructions uh, because I would forget to turn left or forget to turn right. She didn't realize I really have a very poor spatial memory. Some people have a stick. My wife has a fantastic spatial memory. On the other hand, I have a very good memory for seeing results, looking at things, seeing pictures. So people vary in what they remember. So they can be quite strong in one area and surprisingly weak in another. And I find the spatial dimension really quite instructive because some people are really spectacular and some people are quite weak in it. And that's irrespective of overall intelligence. Okay? Um, and that's another thing to realize that intelligence per se, of which memory is a component, is not a unimodal capability. So you can be, could be very good at numbers, you could be very good at ideas. It varies a great deal. So there really are no common denominators for people that have uh, a problem with spatial dimension? Oh, I'm not, I didn't say that. But I'm oh. saying if you're looking at intelligence as a whole, mm -hmm. there is not a single dimension that determines intelligence. Oh, I see. 
see, you could be very, very bright at one thing. I can be very bright at another thing. We both are quite intelligent, but not intelligent about the same thing. Right. You have more skills in certain areas than I have, and I may have more skills than you have. But we're both spatially challenged. <laughs> in this case, yes. <laughs> uh, so I don't know whether I've answered your question on that. Uh, there are special people. They're called memorists who have spectacular memories. They remember everything, particularly verbal memory, every name they've encountered, every number they've encountered. They have a spectacular recall for that. How is that possible? How do they do that? Um, people have different tricks for doing it. Some associate colors with things they want to remember, so they see this as yellow. It's called synesthesia. They have... Uh, they make readily ready associations between the new material and something that's already stored in their memory. And uh, there are two interesting features about that. There have been several detailed psychological studies of those people, and I'm thrilled to tell you, because I do not have a perfect memory by log shot, that those people are miserable. <laughs> they feel their head is filled with garbage. Mm -hmm. They cannot be creative because they can't play with those ideas. And so they're not happy folks, uh, number one. And number two, um, people somewhat less retentive than that, but still very good, um, sort of have a photographic memory. That is a feature of youth and adolescence that dissipates in late teens and early 20s. That's a special kind of memory that, that a certain class of young people have. Very, very interesting. Isabel, did you have your questions answered? Yes, I did. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Isabel. Dr. Kendall, do you think that, that good memories or happy memories um, or traumatic memories burn into our memory in the same way? Are they as powerful? Well, traumatic memories are very powerful. And one of the reasons um, people suffer, in, for example, um, people coming back from the war who've been in battle, a certain fraction of them come down with post-traumatic stress syndrome. That's a very serious affliction. And it really can bother people for a very long time. Concentration camp survivors, you know, wake up screaming remembering some of the incidents that they have witnessed. Uh, those are very, very frightening things. Um, happy memories also have some endurance, but I think they don't equate in power, in magical power, to the unmagical horror of really frightening experiences. Now, talk therapy can change the synapses in our brains and help overcome those memories. How does that? How do, how is that possible? How does talk therapy help change the synapses in our brains, and how does it help us change behavior? Well, look, this is a perfect way of sort of pulling together what we've talked about. Uh, so we began by saying uh, that learning um, is uh, results in anatomical changes in the brain that allow us now to remember that information for long periods of time. Yes. Uh, a therapeutic experience is a learning experience. You are sitting with a therapist whom you trust, sharing your frightening early experience. And the therapist in this trusting relationship allows you to relive, to re-experience those 
awkward situation in a new context. So you're learning a new way of feeling about those situations, of understanding those situations. That is a learning process, just like any learning process, and leads to anatomical changes in the brain that carry you forward, but now in a more functional, beneficial, socially desirable way. So it's a learning experience like any other learning experience that carried out in a specific context designed to help you overcome the limitations of the earlier learning of that experience. So our brains are essentially very learning machines. plastic and very, very movable and changeable, and, and we have the ability to change or redesign our brains every single moment of the day. You got it, kid. That's amazing. It's, it's amazing. I, the I brain is enormously plastic. And I should tell you that with imaging experiments, one can detect abnormalities in people's brains prior to psychotherapy. And if and only if psychotherapy works, you see a reversal of that brain abnormality when you see the behavioral abnormality return to normal. Extraordinary. One one last question before we move on to a different topic before we close the show. But And this I don't even know if it's possible to answer. But... Where do you think or what do you think researchers will find consciousness to be? Um, we don't really know the answer to yeah, that. We know very little about consciousness. It's a biological process. It's a way that we monitor our own activity and make ourselves aware of what's going on. But whether this is a single system within the brain that mediates this or combinations of systems, we don't know as yet. This is the sort of one of the ultimate questions in brain research. And the brain is the most complicated organ in the body. It mediates all aspects of mental activity. And we're beginning to make progress in understanding it, but we're at the tip of a great mountain range. We're by no means near the top. Consciousness is the top. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Kandel. I know that your next book is a book about art. And if you can just quickly tell us about that, I would love to... Uh, let our listeners know where they can get more information about your work and your writings. Um, well, let me. You, you, the book that I just came out with, In Search of Memory, is published by Norton. Yes, which is a marvelous book. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm book. now um, sort of beginning, I'm halfway through a book that concerns. Um, Expressionist art, which I love and which I collect. So I collect both German and Austrian expressionist artists. But I'm from Vienna, uh, and I have particular fondness for Klim, Chile, and Kokoschka, three expressionist artists who worked from about 1895. Two of them died in 1918, and Kokoschka lived until around 1975. And I've collect some of their works on paper, and I've been interested in how they discovered um, unconscious instinct, erotic drives and aggression, um, and expressed it in their paintings uh, at the same time that Freud did, but independently. And so did a famous contemporary author by the name of Arthur Schnitzler, who wrote about the erotic and the aggressive life. Wow. And I've placed it. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. Sorry. I've traced it back to a um, famous physician in Vienna who taught Schnitzel and Freud, a guy called Rokotansky, and he had a colleague 
uh, called Tsuka Kandl, whose wife ran a salon, and she was very friendly with Clint, who often came to the salon. And, and Tsuka Kandl taught Clint about biology, taught him about Rokotansky, and got him interested in the biological underpinnings of instincts. So there was a common thread between Clint, who taught Schilling Kokoschka, that is, how the artists learned about instincts, and how Freud and Schnitzler get involved in thinking about this. Well, thank you so much. We are so thrilled to have you on the show today, Dr. Kandel. I can't wait for your book, when it, your new book, when it comes out, your book that's out now, In Search of Memory, The Emergence, science of a new, the Emergence of a New Science of Mind, is available in bookstores everywhere. It is an extraordinary read. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Pleasure, Debbie. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Adobe. Thanks to Brian, Rubin, and Jeff at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is author, editor, radio show host, and journalist, Kurt Anderson. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you.